0: I'm Austin, and this is the Solana Podcast. So today is another of our episodes in this series focusing on climate, climate change, carbon markets, and sustainability. So uh, Amira, welcome back as the co-host of this episode. So what are we chatting about today?
1: Today we're talking carbon markets. Uh, This is part two of a series that we're doing on climate change and blockchain. And the idea here is to shed light on the role that the blockchain community can play in the fight against climate change
0: but is the market efficient enough?
1: <laughs> <laughs> is it an efficient market, we say? Uh, well, like a huge, a huge percentage of the work at the intersection of blockchain and climate change is focused on improving carbon markets. And I got to admit, when I first heard this, I thought it was a classic example of Web3 people claiming that blockchain can solve everything in the world. Uh, really felt like a solution search for a problem. But you and I started digging into this more and more together. And, and I think both of us were surprised at what we found here. I gained increasing conviction that there's actually really something to the idea of putting carbon markets on chain. It might be the perfect use for blockchain. So I invited two people who are experts in carbon markets to the show today to talk to us about how carbon markets work. Matthew Stotts and Brendan O'Connell. Matthew Stotts is co-founder and general partner at Cerulean Ventures, a venture fund that exclusively backs Web3 companies building the infrastructure and tools necessary to scale climate impact in this decade. They believe that natural assets will unlock the next $50 trillion in economic growth. Brendan O'Connell is product and operations lead at Patch, an API developer making it easy to calculate your carbon footprint and purchase offsets. Before Patch, he was the founder of EarthBloom, an API focused on measuring and removing carbon emissions in crypto specifically. I asked Matthew and Brendan to chat about carbon markets because they have incredibly rich backgrounds in the space spanning both Web2 and Web3. They also see the industry from opposite vantage points. Matthew's investing in the industry from the top down. He's got a bird's eye view of the entire ecosystem. Brendan is building things from the bottom up. He knows firsthand what it's like to attempt to build the nuts and bolts of a carbon marketplace and all the challenges that come with it. Matthew and Brendan, welcome and thanks for being here. Why don't we start off by just handing it over to you and, and each of you just spending a minute or two talking about your backgrounds and what they have to do with the carbon market. So, Brendan, tell us a little bit about what Patch does and and your life before Patch and, and sort of how you got there.
2: Cool. Patch is a software company building infrastructure to enable a sustainable economy. And right now we're squarely focused on voluntary carbon markets. So building tools to scale that market and to enable buyers to access a deep array of credits and kind of meet their sustainability goals. In terms of my background, I worked on Wall Street for a number of years, was an investment banker for a while, got kind of sick of that world, and got really excited about what was happening in the climate space and had seen what was going on in crypto and was similarly excited about what was happening in that space and some of the kind of high-level reasons for for why that space might evolve. And I essentially just married those two passions together and founded a company called Earthbloom, which was an API to allow folks to measure the emissions of crypto market activity, as well as access a small marketplace of carbon credits. And actually, that experience led me to Patch. Patch wanted to get into crypto, and I was kind of already building that vertical for them. And so we sort of married those two businesses together and i uh, have been at Patch ever since.
1: So you're, you're squarely at the center of Web3 and blending into Web2. So Web2.5 over at Patch. And Matt, you, you founded Cerulean Ventures... Tell us about your thesis, what kinds of things you focused on, what's got you excited about the space?
3: Cerulean Ventures is really focused on unlocking scale for climate action. So we're focused on blockchain and crypto economics and various elements of the power of of those networks to take what's already working to combat climate change and just accelerate the adoption, bring more finance, and leverage more technology to increase transparency and access and actually make this a global movement. I actually got started in technology and finance about 20 years ago, After graduating Berkeley, working with some early tech startups around Silicon Valley, I just discovered I had a knack for finding emerging technologies with really massive market potential um, and ended up helping venture capitalists tap into these networks, Internet of Things, Web 2.0. But with this experience, I was also a very active angel investor and became intrigued uh, by token economics as a method to fund and support development of public goods. So my first significant investment outside of Bitcoin and Ethereum was a project to create decentralized virtual private networks. After that investment, after seeing the power of that, I committed myself to backing entrepreneurs who sought to bring to life new public goods like that, technology that's owned and controlled by the users. And I just felt so motivated to continue to support these these types of projects, one of which about four years ago was a regen network. Uh, so Regen Network is foundational fintech and environmental science infrastructure to help make agriculture fair for farmers uh, and healing for the planet. That really was kind of the seed of where Cerulean Ventures came from. Last year, my co-founder, Shahed Momand, and I worked with Gregory Landaway, um, the CEO of Regen Network, to kickstart Cerulean and double down on this focus on earth-scale technologies for climate impact
1: before, you know, getting into the blockchain aspects of things, let's start with just setting the terms and making sure that everyone understands what we're talking about. So, real simple, what's a what's a carbon credit, Matthew?
3: Essentially, we have things that are happening in economic production that are harmful that we cannot address in our current economic system. And so, regulatory bodies came together through the UN and the Kyoto Accords back in the late 90s, and then later through the uh, Paris Agreement in 2015, to set up some form of ledger that would be able to track the carbon that was being emitted into the environment. This excess greenhouse gas we know is creating a warming effect on both the atmosphere and our ocean. So by basically saying, look, human activity is generating more and more carbon, we need to actually track this and put it on a on a ledger where we can account for it. And then in doing so, there was kind of two methodologies that came about to say, by taking carbon out of your practices as an industrial entity, or given essentially a credit in balance for that. And on the other side of that, there's the offset, which is more the voluntary side of things.
0: So at a more basic level, these markets are slightly synthetic in the sense that The need for a carbon credit comes from what? Usually a governmental mandate, a company's desire to offset. Like, where does the notion that someone or an organization needs to or should acquire a carbon credit come from?
3: Yeah, so there's the voluntary side of the market, which is really what we call offsets. And it's in the voluntary side of the market. Companies are addressing their own impact through their own motivation. It is truly voluntary. There's no requirement that's putting that burden on them. Companies like Microsoft, Stripe, Amazon, large entities are seeking out projects that are good for the planet and allow them to reduce their carbon footprint. They obviously want to establish methodologies to demonstrate the the accuracy of of those efforts, but that is truly voluntary. That's really the offset market. Uh, The regulated market is where carbon credits come in. So this is where a regulatory body, if you can take, for example, the cap and trade program in California, says that carbon has a price. They've established that price and said, you know, as an entity in this economy, you have an impact on our environment and you're essentially allowed only to emit so much carbon before there is a cost of that carbon. And then the cap and trade system allows various companies to trade the credits that they generate. So some some industries or some companies may be more effective at reducing their carbon footprint and therefore can generate credits and those that are either slower or more intractable forms of industry can actually purchase those credits. So there's a net benefit by creating a, a regulatory environment that puts a price on carbon and then the market exists inside of that where any um, entity that is affected by that regulation can trade back and forth the credits for the carbon that they emit.
1: Got it. So, so to be clear, there's basically, there's voluntary carbon markets, which is, you know, I'm Microsoft or I'm Chevron, I'm a big company, and I want to make a commitment to offset my carbon emissions. And I can go buy those through those credits through voluntary carbon markets. Or there's maybe compliance or government run uh, carbon markets, where maybe the state of California will mandate that any one company is limited to a certain amount of emissions, and they basically pay for that externality to be able to emit whatever carbon that they're emitting. And they pay that, what, directly to the government? Or is, there, is are those carbon markets married somehow?
3: There's a carbon tax uh, system in Europe. There's other systems that establish a market. And in that case, those payments are made to regulators. In a cap-and-trade system, once the price is, is established, there is the potential for penalty. But most entities enter the trade portion of, of carbon trade. So their emissions they're allowed to create are capped. They can purchase their excess from other folks in the market. And if they cannot, then they'll ultimately end up making a payment to a governing body.
1: So when we're talking about, let's say, patch or what's happening in blockchain-based carbon markets, we're mostly talking about voluntary carbon markets, at least at the moment. Is that right?
2: I think almost exclusively in the voluntary market, although Matthew might be aware of some endeavors happening in the compliance market. But um, just to give a sense of scale here, so I forget if this is global or just U.S. I want to say this is just U.S., but in 2021, I think the voluntary carbon market was about a billion dollars in terms of size whereas compliance market was 50 billion. So the compliance market's much bigger, but a lot of the innovation is really happening in the voluntary space.
0: When you talk about innovation, what does innovation mean in something like a carbon credit and a voluntary carbon market?
2: I mean, historically, this is a space that does not have a lot of software. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that the compliance market is much bigger. So a lot of the businesses that were generated to play in this space were kind of built around the compliance market, which is a little bit clunky in nature due to its like regulatory origins but innovation and where software is coming into play in the voluntary space is um, you know folks are building things like apis like what patch does so that any business can access carbon credits that traditionally are more difficult to get folks are building modern registries that are more accessible and easier to digest people are building ratings data and piping that all around so that folks have a sense of what they're actually buying and, and understand the quality of it. So there's just there's just a more forward thinking model being applied in terms of data and the prevalence of software. Traditionally, accessing these credits was quite hard because you might need to get a registry account, which might take months to get. It might require upfront capital, or perhaps you'd have to deal with brokers who maybe just use phones or Email forms. It's just all very old school. And, and so folks are coming in and, and modernizing that, that stack.
1: Can we double down on that a bit? So I think one of the things that kind of blew my mind as I started looking into the space was it, it's really difficult for me to Google like how to buy a carbon credit. You know, it just like the retail acquisition of carbon credits feels impossible. I think like as I started digging into it more and more, I discovered there are these sort of four nonprofits that run most of the voluntary global carbon market, as far as I understand. So can you talk a little bit about how the markets work today? Like who sort of runs most of the space? How do people acquire carbon credits?
3: This is really just an OTC market. So it's an over-the-counter market where an asset is generated through a fairly laborious manual process that's shepherded via a broker to some form of entity. So a registry like the ones you mentioned, Vera, Gold Standard. Uh, There's a few other established nonprofit registries that kind of validate the voluntary carbon credits for trading. And then that same broker or organization will essentially find a buyer for that. In terms of innovation, I mean, the software, it really is the phenomena we've seen across so many industries just to actually codify what is happening into code instead of into some paper-based manual or process that is effective and is useful but isn't scalable. As we move towards applying more and more global technology, things like blockchain, uh, where you have transparency to observe the assets and look at the metadata and how they were created, you're just naturally going to invite more and more market participants.
0: Yeah, there's sort of a, a funny market dynamic. When we at the Solana Foundation went out to purchase offset credits for the network from some providers, it would be like, oh, for the amount you need, it's X price, but if you wanted to buy twice that much or three times as much, it can be as much as 30% cheaper to, to do that transaction. And it's so interesting to think about, like, there's not 30% margin to cut in almost any other market I can think of.
3: This is a um, artifact of an over-the-counter market, right? So it's effective for that handheld matching kind of process, but it ultimately is not efficient. We need a a fair, open, and efficient market to really accelerate the change we need to make.
2: Yeah, I think it'd be worth maybe taking a step back and articulating what some of these projects are too, because we're kind of dancing around it, but uh, it might not be totally clear to everyone. So Matthew kind of hinted at a big one, which is like regenerative agriculture type projects. So that could be something like grazing the land or tilling it differently. And what that's going to do is change the amount of carbon that's stored in the soil versus what gets remitted into the atmosphere. So something like changing your farming practices would be one of these projects we're alluding to. Another really simple example would be something like taking cleared land and planting a bunch of trees. Of course, we remember elementary school biology classes or nature science classes that trees absorb Carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases from the atmosphere, they store that carbon in the soil and its bark and trunk itself. So planting a bunch of trees is also going to be another main type of carbon project that folks might endeavor to uh, sell credits to in this market.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you touched on that because one of the things that struck me as I was trying to get to this market is there are credits that are a dollar and then there are credits that are $400. And there's a huge range between what these types of credits are. And one of the things I heard is there's a bunch of credits that sort are of masquerading around as zombie credits. So what is the gap between all of these? Like what are the high quality credits? And then what are the sort of like zombie shitty credits? And how do they get sort of brought on to market? Like, Why, why are people verifying that if, if one of the reasons that we have these registries is to help filter? out these lower quality credits?
3: The lower quality credits exist. And so, you know, if an asset exists, it can be purchased and obviously it'll be purchased at a lower price. I think that the market is starting to do what it's supposed to do there. You know, a lot of these credits were created some time ago. So carbon credits have vintages. They are for a specific time period. And and this can be for a number of reasons. Either they're temporal in the sense that they're part of a regulatory. Uh, framework that is is trying to get annual reductions in place, and so. You, you just can't keep getting credit for something that you did forever ago. Like a bond, they have a tenor and they ultimately expire. And then secondly, it's the quality of the project itself. So you know, bolting a smokestack scrubber onto a coal-fired plant is one form of carbon emission reduction, supposedly. But it also just prolongs the life of a coal-fired plant, right? So that's not necessarily the most valuable carbon credit you're generating. As carbon credits and offsets gain a higher price in the market, they do so because they are more traceable, they are more transparent, they have more metadata and information about them. All of these things are what we see in blockchain-based networks, right? So as these assets get created in technology environments where they can be more rapidly audited, where you can see the nature of the project very, very quickly, very easily, we expect to see those prices kind of hold or go up.
0: Sorry, I just want to kind of hold on that first part that you were talking about for a second, which is, you know, most markets act most efficiently when they have availability of information. And there's kind of this interesting dynamic that's happened here where, both everything runs through some form of centralized approving agency that has to validate these carbon credits, but also we have a pretty persistent problem where the validation seems to not necessarily be doing its job is that a process where because we have things like zombie credits or we have credits that turn out that when someone actually does verification on the verification you know it's the location of the the project isn't where it says it is it didn't do the work it was it said it was going to do so is there a process where that becomes more permissionless or a faster process if it's not delivering what it's necessarily intended to now
3: Yeah, I mean, my biggest concern is the bureaucracy of the -the over-the-counter verification and registry process will impact the credibility of the methodologies. And, you know, these methodologies are scientific processes that have been peer-reviewed and developed over time, you know, with really solid environmental science. The challenge is that when you get to this kind of bureaucratic process at some point you have a project that's a hundred plus page pdf and there's a bunch of information that is embedded in there that either can be inaccurate or just difficult to update and maintain so like with any process like that you're going to have error rates and and various failings but i think it really comes down to a throughput problem right so we just can't continue to use we can't rely on this kind of over-the-counter methodology
2: just to scale the opportunity here I do think it's it's challenging to change the existing paradigm overnight though because decentralizing measurement it's pretty hard like to to know how much carbon a tree or a group of trees have pulled in over a given period or to know that certain practices were employed correctly it's 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 very challenging and I think I'm most excited about particularly in the in the blockchain space where folks are trying to figure out systems where this can be done on a more decentralized basis Because that, to me, feels like the clear blocker.
1: It sounds like where we're at is there's this existing registry that has sort of this existing sort of methodology for verifying different carbon credits. And and what we're saying now is we can put a bunch of these credits on chain. We see the potential behind it. And we're going to use technology to help with these verification problems. We don't necessarily get trapped in this sort of like supply side onboarding. Brendan, you spent a lot of your life thinking about how to bring crypto assets on chain or thinking about sort of that back and forth. Where in that process do you think the best opportunity is? I know you're in particular really excited about this, the monitor recording and verification aspect of things. Like what are some other things that you're seeing in that domain that get you excited about it?
2: Yeah, the the way I think about it right now, like I see the biggest bottleneck in the traditional market is is bringing supply online. So right now we're in a supply constrained market. I don't think anyone feels like dem- there's a shortage of demand or that demand is going to get weaker in the near term. With the advent of net zero goals and other climate commitments, it seems pretty obvious that demand is going to get stronger and it's it's already quite strong. So clearly the problem is on the supply side. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm very excited for crypto to focus on that area. Where I'm maybe less excited about is, I think, on the demand side, which is where most of the the focus has been to date, frankly. And I get naturally why folks would want to build there. But I just think that right now, a lot of the corporate buyers in the traditional market are still sort of scared of, Carbon markets in general, like like it's still such a nascent and early market where where folks are trying to understand, you know, what is a carbon credit? What are the trade offs of this one versus that one? And you still see the the media portraying this market in a certain way. Like you had the John Oliver piece that came out a couple of weeks ago that was quite critical. And I think adding in the the crypto dimension right now is is challenging for a lot of the big corporate buyers. And I think that narrative will change when, you know, there's differentiated supply that's coming on board and, and this market becomes super deep with high-quality credits and better data structuring in general.
1: And, and so talk a little bit more about that. You know, from your vantage point at Patch, you're working with a ton of different corporate buyers. What are the questions they're asking? or are, are, are they – excited about the potential to buy different credits? Like, How are they discerning between what you're able to offer them? And, and do you see a world where they're willing to buy credits off the blockchain, or do they really want to go and stick with these credits that are verified from these existing registries?
2: So I think on-chain credits are really important for crypto businesses and Web3 projects, and that's what we've seen, and that's how we approach it. So right now we think about that as being an important vertical, but a vertical nonetheless. Like We don't see the need for our whole business to be on-chain all of a sudden, and there certainly isn't outsized demand from our customers for that to be the case. In terms of what I see corporate buyers being excited about, I think it's more on building a portfolio that reflects their business and their customers' values. So they want to know that if they have a big customer base in, in Europe or Asia, they want to have credits in projects that are serving those communities. They want to know that the permanence and the additionality of their projects are there. So they want to feel good about that data. So I think it's much more on the portfolio construction side and also the risk management side too, of feeling like, you know, that this isn't going to turn into some sort of greenwashing claim, like hit piece that gets written about them. I think folks are much more interested in, in managing the risk side of it than people probably appreciate
1: Right. Yeah, people don't want to be seen as buying these terrible credits. They're they're like it's not it's not worth the expenditure for us to to do that. But if you're gonna buy crypt, like credits on chain, you should probably be a crypto company. Like it, the the beachhead market there is for people who are putting markets on chain. Austin, you look like you're thinking something.
0: Yeah, the thing I keep kind of coming back to, which is this, is very funny market dynamic that we see in this space. Like very rarely do you find something outside of the crypto market that feels like it's full of just as much scams as the crypto market. And something about this this whole space and industry feels like between these sort of like very middlemen broker dealer relationships to the the verification issues with projects and those sort of things. I just think it's an interesting matchup where there there are certainly technological barriers to bringing carbon markets on chain. But like, do you think the fundamental structure of how these things are built right now? is suitable for any sort of market force. right? These things are not traded on NYSE or the Chicago Mercantile Exchange or, or any sort of traditional exchanges. And I love the idea of front-running it and just moving it directly to the blockchain, but I'm curious what both of your views are of almost more conceptual-level barriers to bringing this stuff on chain.
3: Yeah, I actually see no barriers at all other than just kind of time to market and, and time to accelerate the market dynamics. So I think they're maybe not necessarily fair criticisms, but they're acceptable criticisms in the sense that every nascent market has issues. My view is that this is really just an early but you know rapidly evolving market. And let's not dismiss the massive potential to do good and make change for some early mistakes or stub toes.
1: Austin, it strikes me as your question is, this market is full of scams right now. Aren't we just going to keep seeing these inefficiencies if we put it on chain? Like, is is putting it on chain actually going to solve any problems?
3: Oh, first, first, I think it certainly is. And I, one, I take issue that uh, characterizing it as full of scams because I really don't think that is the case.
0: I, I wouldn't say full of, but but there there are some
3: high-profile examples of stuff go to your local used car lot go any go to any market there scams for sure I think these I think these things exist as a as a as a function of markets and as markets mature they get worked out either through financial means or through regulatory means I think that what we're seeing in terms of the ability to create transparent, auditable methodologies for capturing carbon, for re- reducing, removing carbon are really kind of going to get at the core of that. And what's a better method for transparency and auditability than open source software and distributed ledger technology? So I, th- I think we're heading in the right direction and we need, we essentially need to bring more of that to bear more quickly. Sure. So,
0: so let me ask this maybe in a slightly different way. Of the cost that goes into currently buying and selling a carbon credit, how much of that potential margin, that that cost of whatever the the end dollar value is paid, can be reduced through the use of blockchain technologies? You look at something like a loan, and we can say like all the origination costs, all the verification costs. Like there, there's a real case where an on-chain loan is a zero cost execution loan. Whereas like if you go into a bank, there's a lot of work that has to be done to make something like that possible. What's that look like for carbon credits in a place that you know you see a, a huge potential for blockchain technology versus the current model?
3: Yeah, I think it's well over 50%. So I mean the overhead is astounding. There aren't great studies on it yet that I can cite, but just in terms of anecdotal one-off projects that we've seen for the different companies that we're in projects that we're backing, well over 50% as a general case. So, I mean, that should get technologists and entrepreneurs very excited. There's a lot of overhead and margin in here, mostly due to inefficiencies in the market. So um, I think as we begin to address those, we'll actually have the opportunity to fund more and more innovation, essentially using that arbitrage. I'll give an example of a project called Silta that w- we've worked with. I think what's interesting, Austin, that you bring up is this loan factor. So financing these projects is, is critical. Um, and yet, how do you do the, the diligence and the underwriting? So Silta is actually forming uh, a DAO of underwriters that can actually look at projects and provide the underwriting methodologies basically lawyers freeing up time to coordinate on helping projects get get their basic diligence and underwriting completed so you have you have methodologies like that i think that are that are only capable through decentralized systems and on-chain governance and then as you see like this opportunity to bring more efficient monitoring reporting and verification i don't think to brandon's point like corporates are coming to buy based on blockchain or or crypto, but entrepreneurs and projects are building efficiencies with that and, and in so doing are able to bring the kind of transparency that large purchasers are looking for.
1: So fifty percent seems phenomenal. Uh, it feels very high. I, I'm curious, Brendan, as someone who's worked on sort of the market, the market making side of things, like does does that line up to you? And if so, like what are the places where you might capture that fifty percent? Or if not, like what does sort of the margin savings look like?
2: Yeah, I don't have a strong opinion on what the margin savings could be. I'm a little bit less closer to that world. I mean, the way Patch works is is suppliers directly list their projects on our infrastructure, and so in a way we're um, saving margin for buyers because you know they're coming to us. There's not secondary trading that happens on in our infrastructure. And I think that's where a lot of these markups come from and why people are able to offer discounts is because these these credits will tra- trade hands many, many times. And all the while they're increasing the pricing from what it was originally bought for from the, the supplier. And as you can imagine all that that markup that's not helping the environment at all. That's just going to middlemen. Um, and so that, like that's kind of core to the patch ethos is that we want to just be this adapter to directly fund projects and get money in their hands versus, you know, making money for a bunch of people in the value chain.
1: What kinds of margins does patch take?
2: It depends. It's variable. But um, usually around kind of the low double digit type figure, sometimes single digit. It it really depends. We still do this kind of variable pricing depending on size, naturally, as all businesses do. But it's actually fairly in line with what most of the refi projects are charging on chain, which generally centers around, call it 10%.
0: Yeah. So I found this fascinating because like on Solana DeFi in general, a 0.1% fee is what people will look for in terms of like the take rate that serum could charge or could charge or something like that. And, you know, even if we look at the more traditional asset management world, like a 1% management fee is something that's, you know, high or like a 1% trading fee. This is obviously a very young market. This is obviously a market where there's a lot of inefficiencies in it. But it seems like a lot of the base costs just require a lot of human effort and time. Like in a competitive market system, we should be seeing that fee approach almost zero right which is what you see in other areas whether it's credit card processing or the fees that fintech apps are able to charge nowadays and and those sorts of things is this just an indication of like how early the entire market space still is or this is kind of getting back to my question before about like how is there that much margin still to churn through that a blockchain could help with right are we still that early in the market systems here
2: I do think we're still that early. Obviously, it just costs money to hire people to build technology that will help scale this market. And so I'm generally comfortable with folks charging that much because I'm not sure it'd be sustainable. Otherwise, you could see a crypto project issue a token and compensate all of their developers that way. But that's hit or miss. That doesn't always work. And so frankly, these businesses need to generate revenue.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'd add here that focusing too much on the credits or the offsets kind of takes a view off of the projects and the work that real people, communities, often very large indigenous communities are doing to heal the planet, to sequester carbon because it's good for the soil and the immediate ecosystem that they live in and that sustains them, but also good for the planet. And so as we look at like how to get those projects funded more effectively, I think you're going to see some novel applications of blockchain here. So you think of like future forward contracts where a large funder could make a 10-year purchase of well-managed, well-stewarded land that would be generating a carbon offset for them over time. By prepaying for that, folks who are doing the work actually get the funding and the finance they need to build these projects and to do the work. And bringing that on chain is really another really important part of this. Ultimately, that will generate a credit or an offset. Those may be more like the digital assets, uh, Austin, that you're describing. You know, DeFi trading of a token or a given token should definitely tend towards zero in terms of its efficiency. But these projects require a different type of financing mechanism than simply the credit itself. So I think we'll see that come on chain in a really sophisticated way and you know starting to see things like finance for renewable energy projects where we know there are revenue streams there if the carbon credit can function as a form of remuneration long-term for these projects, then I think we'll see the similar mechanisms that will fund those projects.
2: Could, could you expand that for a second, though? Because, okay, if, if the on-chain ecosystem is cheaper just from a cost perspective, then I understand why that would happen on-chain. But it's not obvious to me why like forward contracts need to be on-chain, at least right now, where the market is.
3: I, w- I would agree they don't need to be on-chain. In the case of you know who is going to be bringing finance to these projects, so you're talking about connecting... Global projects often in the global south, with finance that's not often directly accessible to the people who are doing those projects, so when you're coming to market as a solution provider here to kind of bridge that gap, doing that work on chain with an auditable financial contract can potentially be the most effective way to do that
2: yeah, one of the things you said earlier well, you were talking about. Or maybe it was Amira who asked about whether a farmer can just come and create a project. And and, and that's an area where I see blockchain as being really interesting because in, in the traditional market it's actually quite hard for uh, someone to come in and self serve and say, I wanna I have all this land, let me create a project. Like it's really driven by the big project developers themselves. And so I think that's an area that's very exciting for me to watch is where this becomes kind of a self-serve, bottoms-up type space where the technology is there off the shelf and folks can bring carbon projects to market.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a great note to wrap on. And I wish we could spend even more time talking about the projects, but it's a good reminder that part of the reason that this space is exciting is not just sort of the margins that might be shrunk, but really the opportunity to blow out the size of the market, because we just have an opportunity to bring a lot more supply on chain. And both of you have really put like your money on the line here, but Matthew, you raised an entire venture fund basically aimed at this idea that we're going to see this industry explode. And it's solely focused on this. Maybe we'll wrap up and just say, you know, where, where can folks go to find you or hear more about what you're doing? Brendan, where can people go to find you?
2: Well, you can learn more about Patch at patch.io and uh, I'm on Twitter and just search O'Connell, my last name, you'll find me.
1: Nice. And Matthew, how about you? Where can people go to learn more about you and Cerulean?
2: Oh, the Twitters are always good. So I'm
3: M.L. Stotts on Twitter. Cerulean is C-E-R-U-L-E-A-N underscore X-Y-Z on Twitter or cerulean.vc.
1: Thank you both so much for such a good conversation and for teaching us about carbon markets. It's very useful and very complicated. (laughs) Take care, guys. Awesome.
2: Thank you both. Thanks.